It's good to be with you this morning. If you are a guest with us, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Uh, and we're very glad that you're here. We hope that this morning you feel loved and welcomed and served by our church. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be white or blue paperback Bibles in the shelf of the pew in front of you. You can grab one of those. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. As Dan mentioned, we also have these resources, books, booklets out on the table uh, right where you walked in uh, this morning. If you're uh, a seeker, a skeptic, someone who just wants to learn more about the Christian faith, um, we'd love to put some of those resources in your hands. We'd love to, to talk with you. Uh, feel free to go to the, the uh, table at the black cloth out in the great hall after service. Uh, I'd also love to talk with you. Um, please, let's, let's grab a moment and just chat after the service. I'd love to, to greet you and say hello. All right, we are going to dig into 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and joy, because this is the word of our God. The Apostle Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, a few years ago, a news reporter in Australia interviewed the then Anglican Archbishop of Perth. He's a well-known religious figure in Australia, and so, you know, many people would, might be interested in, in hearing what he had to say. And so the, the reporter asked the Archbishop, she said, if we discovered the tomb of Jesus and could somehow prove that the remains in the tomb were Jesus' remains, what would that do to your faith? In other words, what, what would you do if we discovered that the resurrection never happened? 
What would you do if we discovered that the claims of the New Testament were untrue, that all this time the rotted corpse of Jesus has been somewhere in Israel the whole time? What would that do to your faith? And to this, the archbishop replied by saying that it wouldn't do anything to his faith because Jesus Christ would still be risen in his heart. And that may sound to you like a, like a pious spiritual thing to say, However, it's deeply unbiblical. It's a deeply unchristian thing to say because here in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul has a very different perspective on the matter. Here in verse 3, the Apostle Paul actually says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance to Christians. In verse 17 of, of chapter 15 here, he puts it a little more sharply. He says that if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile, it's worthless, and you are still in your sins. In other words, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not a real historical event, Christianity is nothing but a worthless waste of time. If Jesus Christ isn't raised from the dead, then he isn't who he said he is. He didn't accomplish what he said he accomplished. He may be a lunatic, he may be a liar, but he's certainly not the Lord of the universe. If he isn't raised from the dead, there's no forgiveness, no new birth, no hope for Christians beyond that of a sort of delusional, unfounded happiness we may find in this life. Therefore, we should be pitied as Christians if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. But if he did rise from the dead, then he's given us proof that he is who he said he is. He's the son of God. If he did rise from the dead, then he's given us proof that he really did accomplish what he said he would accomplish, namely the forgiveness of sins. The new birth is real. Our hope is well-founded. What more proof do you need than someone being raised from the dead? Now, I often talk with people who aren't Christians and some of who are, whom are, are, are kind of searching, maybe, maybe struggling with the truth claims of the Christian faith, and, and many really like parts of the Christian faith, but struggle with certain aspects of it. You know, many people may like the social concern that, that Christians have or, or the community that we experience or the hope that we feel uh, now in this life or after we die. But then maybe they don't like other aspects like the sexual ethics or the exclusive claims of the Christian faith or the organized religion or they really don't like the stuff about judgment when Jesus returns. But I want you to realize this morning None of that is really of first importance in the discussion about the Christian faith. You see, what we like or don't like about Christianity is really less important than whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. Because if he didn't, then none of what he said really matters. None of what we're doing here really matters. The sexual ethics, the exclusivity, the organized religion, the stuff about judgment, you can toss it all if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. But if he was, then whether or not you like what he said is of little consequence. You have to accept what he said. You have to submit to him as Lord. You have to follow him with everything that you are. Now, Some would say that the resurrection is more and more, you know, becoming something that people may have believed in the past, but now due to the the progress of human reason, it's just not something that people can readily accept anymore. It's not something that people will be likely to believe much longer. After all, you know, someone might say, 
if, if we know anything about dead people, it's that they usually stay dead. You know, as if first century Greco-Roman people didn't know that. And Jesus of Nazareth really was truly dead. He truly died. There's no doubt about that. It was a public event. There were witnesses. These witnesses recorded the event. They reported his, of his, his death as a historical reality. There's no doubt. Uh, on Good Friday, we looked at a quote from uh, an atheist New Testament scholar by the name of Gerd Ludemann, uh, where he said that the death of Jesus Christ by crucifixion is indisputable. But listen, we have the same evidence for the resurrection. We have the same sorts of evidence for the resurrection as we do the, as for the crucifixion. However, because the resurrection of Christ is considered a supernatural event, people generally have a hard time believing it. And so many people object to the, the claim that the resurrection is true, and they try to explain it away in a number of different ways. And so there's a number of different theories that people might hold to in order to explain away the truth claim of the resurrection. So first, people will hold to what they often call the swoon theory. The swoon theory. And the swoon theory claims that Jesus didn't actually die, but he passed out from the excruciating pain of crucifixion. That's why he was able to get up three days later and walk around and talk with his friends. However, that can't be true. That theory could only be held by people who understand nothing of the brutality of, of Roman crucifixion. And, you know, the, 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 not to mention, even if he had survived crucifixion with its asphyxiation from being nailed on, onto a cross for hours, with, with the nails being driven through his hands and his feet, the flogging before crucifixion, the being stabbed in a heart with a spear and everything else, it would have been impossible for him to get up just three days later and be walking around and talking with, him, with his friends. That, that seems much more unlikely than the resurrection. Still, some others try to explain away the resurrection by saying that it was all a big fraud and that he didn't really rise from the dead because his, his body was stolen or, or something happened with his body and his friends made up the fact that he was raised from the dead. But again, that doesn't really explain it. Who had motive to steal the body? The Romans and Jews wanted Christianity to die, so stealing, would, stealing the body wouldn't be in their interest. Uh, the disciples didn't steal it because they were convinced that the movement was over with Jesus' death, that they all just went back to their day jobs. Uh, not to mention, that doesn't explain all of the eyewitness reports of the people who said that they saw Jesus after his resurrection. And the fact that many of these witnesses suffered and even died for preaching about the resurrection. People don't die for a lie. They don't die for something that they know to be a fraud. Even uh, New Testament scholar Marcus Borg, who categorically denies the resurrection of Christ, once said, I do not regard deliberate fraud as a worthwhile explanation. Many of the people in these lists were to spend the rest of their lives proclaiming that they had seen the risen Lord, and several of them would die for the cause. And still, others tried to explain away the resurrection by saying that all of Jesus' friends were just hallucinating when they saw him after his death. This theory seeks to explain the resurrection by claiming that Jesus' disciples and friends and family were all just hallucinating. You know, they all just lost this person that they loved and, and cherished and revered, and in their grief, they started to hallucinate and think that Jesus came back from the dead. And, and this sometimes happens, you know? People will sometimes hallucinate and believe that they're seeing a loved one after death. However, there's no way 
that hundreds of people could have been experiencing the same hallucination at the same time. To claim that hundreds of people experienced the same hallucination and recalled everything the same way is ludicrous. But even if they did have some sort of shared hallucination, their claim that Jesus had had been raised from the dead could have been easily discredited, if it was not true, by the Romans and the Jews simply producing the body of Jesus and taking people to his tomb. And there there are other theories, but those are the most widely and generally accepted. However, you know, the problem with them is that there's no evidence for any of these claims. There's absolutely no evidence that any of these theories are true, yet many find these theories acceptable because time and experience would tell us that dead people usually don't rise from the dead. But as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out, the early Christians agreed that dead people typically stay dead. That's what made the resurrection of Jesus Christ so astounding. But you know, it is astounding. It's absolutely astounding because you know what we have evidence for? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. As long as you don't start with the assumption that the resurrection can't be true, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has as much evidence going for it as any other commonly accepted historical event. And so what I want to present to you this morning is that Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead. And I want to spend a few moments looking at five pieces of evidence for that claim. There are certainly more, but but we have time for five. And they all start with E. First, the expectation of the scriptures. The expectation of the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the apostle Paul says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So realize this, the scriptures foretold the coming, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ long before he came. Now, Paul is not simply saying in a sort of anti-intellectual, fundamentalist sort of way that Christ died and rose, the scriptures say it, so that's that. No, he's talking about the anticipation of the Old Testament scriptures regarding Christ. He's talking about the 353 prophecies from the Old Testament perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's talking about the 353 passages of scripture written about Jesus, even sometimes centuries, even thousands of years before he came, which he fulfilled. 353 passages of scripture that talk about Christ's birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his his ascension into heaven. These events that took place in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus didn't happen in a historical vacuum. They're a part of the culmination of an ancient story that began thousands of years before. They're a part of the culmination of this ancient story that took shape with this particular people group in North Africa and the Middle East. This people group wrote down their history and wrote down their prophecies and wrote down their poetry. And all of that history, those prophecies, that poetry, tells us about a savior who would come to die for his people and rise three days later. And in Jesus, we have the fulfillment of those scriptures. We have the expectation of the Old Testament scriptures. Next, we have the empty tomb. The empty tomb. We see in verse four of our text that Jesus was buried. 
But still, there were never any pilgrimages to his grave. His grave was never a site of worship, like with the prophets and the priests and the kings of Israel. This most certainly would have been the case. It was a very common practice at the time. But that's not the case for Christians because there was no tomb to go to. He wasn't in the tomb any longer. Without the empty tomb, Christianity would have never started to begin with because from its earliest days, it proclaimed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if these claims could have been discredited by simply someone producing the body of Jesus, his body would have most certainly been produced. However, no one could display the body of Jesus because his body wasn't in the tomb. The tomb was empty. His body was not there. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove the resurrection in and of itself, but it gives us cause to ask a really good question. The question is, if the body's not in the tomb, what happened to it? And that brings us next to the eyewitnesses, the eyewitness reports. Third notice that Paul says here, starting in verse three, he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and listen, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is able to say in his letter to this public gathering of the church in Corinth, around 20 years after the resurrection took place, that there were hundreds of people who saw Jesus after his resurrection and before his ascension. And he makes mention that some of them had died by that point, but most of them are still alive. His point in sharing that is that the Corinthians could go speak to these eyewitnesses and get their account of the things that happened. And even more, he names names. He mentions Cephas. This is another name for the the apostle Peter. He's one of the 12 who followed Jesus. And he was one of the most well-known followers of Jesus. He's the one who denied Jesus three times, but then who had gone back to being a fisherman after the death of Jesus. And he's the one who, after seeing the resurrected Christ, stood up in Jerusalem just 50 days after the resurrection and announced to a crowd of thousands that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Then Paul mentions the the, the rest of the men that followed Jesus. That's what he means when he says the twelve. The 12 were the, were the main leaders of the early church. And they scattered east to Asia, west to Europe, south to Africa in order to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And history tells us that they paid dearly for doing so. Peter was executed by being crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified in modern day Turkey. James was clubbed and stoned to death. Thomas was stabbed to death with spears just east of Syria. Philip was executed in Asia. Matthew stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Simon killed in Persia. Matthias burned at the stake in Syria. John, the only one who wasn't executed, was exiled to the barren island of Patmos. They paid dearly for their witness to Christ's resurrection, and yet they continued on even to death. Next, Paul says that Jesus not only appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, he says, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying, this wasn't just a private event. 
This was a public historical event. Over 500 people saw Jesus after his resurrection. Some ate meals with him and touched him and had conversations with him and heard him teach. And they were all willing to testify to what they saw. Next, Paul says that Jesus then appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And this is an interesting piece of evidence because James, not to be confused with the apostle James, James uh, was the, the, the half-brother of Jesus, okay? And he actually thought that Jesus was a lunatic or a liar until, that is, he saw him raised from the dead. Uh, James is recorded in Mark 3, 21 as having thought that Jesus was out of his mind. He thought he was a lunatic. In John 7, we see the brothers of Jesus ridicule him and mock him as a liar. And yet in Acts 1, after the resurrected Jesus appeared to his mother and brothers, they believed in him. They were found in the coming weeks at prayer meetings with the church. James, the brother of Jesus, even ended up becoming a pastor in the church at Jerusalem until he was martyred in AD 62 by being clubbed to death for his witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Another interesting thing that Paul doesn't explicitly mention here, it gives further evidence to the eyewitness accounts of Christ's resurrection, is that the Gospels in the New Testament say that the first eyewitnesses were women. And interestingly, the Gospels were all written at a time when a woman's testimony was not deemed even permissible in court. Women were viewed as the lesser sex in the Greco-Roman world. They had low social status. At that time, women were seen as if they could not be trusted to give an accurate account of events in court. Some of the skeptics, even in those early days, sought to explain away Christianity because the first eyewitnesses were women. Skeptics dismissed the claim of the resurrection because they thought that these women were hysterical and weak-minded after the death of their friend and that they couldn't be relied upon to give an accurate account of the events. But still, each of the Gospels say that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And if the writers of the Gospels were making all of this up, they certainly wouldn't have made up the fact that women were the, the first eyewitnesses. Or even if they felt the freedom to give a less than accurate account of these events, they most certainly would have either left that part out or changed it completely. However, they didn't. Women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. We have the eyewitnesses. Peter, the 12, the 500, James, the apostles, several women. Many people saw Jesus alive and well three days after his death and for 40 days up until his ascension into heaven. These people testified to what they saw. They wrote it all down in the New Testament and some of them paid dearly for it. Fourth, the explosive church. The explosive church. The explosive growth of the early church. The resurrection helps explain why the church exploded onto the scene of the Greco-Roman world and is still sustained to this day. These very few poor and very marginalized believers in the first century spread the gospel of Christ's resurrection with great boldness and even suffered and died for it. And despite persecution, despite the many martyrdoms they experienced, despite the lack of education and the scandalous past of some of Christ's followers, they ended up leading a movement that within three centuries took over the entire Roman Empire and utterly changed world history. Christ's people exploded onto the scene of the world. 
And they started new churches that preached the gospel and fed the hungry and clothed the naked and visited the imprisoned and started hospitals and adopted orphans and achieved racial reconciliation and positively influenced government. And in many ways, many other ways, permeated this broken world with the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. The world is an entirely different place than it would have been because of Christ's followers. And Christ's followers exploded and lived in this way because of the transformative power of Christ's resurrection. James Allen Francis once said, of all the armies that ever marched, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned had not had the impact on the world of this one solitary life. And it's true. No one, no matter how much wealth or power they possessed, changed history in the way that Jesus has. This man born of a marginalized people group in the first century, born to a poor and powerless family who grew up in a town that apparently nothing good could come from, who died the death of a criminal on a cross is at the center of world history. He himself never led an army or carried a sword or wore a crown on his head. He barely had two pennies to rub together. He never wrote anything down that we have record of. But today, there are Christians all over the world celebrating his resurrection, celebrating that he's alive, despite the church's opposition from without and even sometimes within. Here she remains. And not only that, but she's ever moving forward throughout the world. Today, there are churches all over the world who are in many different languages singing the same praises that we've been singing for none other than the resurrected Christ. The early church exploded onto the scene in the Greco-Roman world, and she continues throughout the world to this day. An abundance of people all over the global south are confessing and claiming Christ as Lord every day. The resurrection of Jesus Christ continues to be propagated and proclaimed unhindered by world leaders and those in authority, however hard they might try to purge the record and people of Jesus from the earth. We have the evidence of the explosive church. And lastly, we have the extraordinary transformation. The extraordinary transformation. Here beginning in verse eight, the author of 1 Corinthians offers himself up as a piece of evidence for the resurrection. Paul saw and met the risen Christ, and he was willing to testify to that, and eventually he even died for that testimony. But it's not only his word that testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but his extraordinary transformation as well. We see here in verse 9 that Paul was a persecutor of the church of God. You may or may not know this, but Paul the man who had carried a central role in Christianity spreading all over the world, Paul who wrote 13 books of Holy Scripture, Paul who suffered beatings and stonings and eventual beheading for the sake of Christ, used to himself persecute Christians. Before meeting the resurrected Christ, Paul oversaw the arrest, the torture, even the murder of Christians throughout his city and region. Paul hated Jesus. Paul hated the church. Paul hated Christians, and he devoted his life to extinguishing the people of God and the record of Jesus from the earth. He did it through violence, through political maneuvering, 
through the use of force, and even through the taking of lives. This man was a murderous thug. This man terrorized the church. This man oversaw the arrest and imprisonment of many Christians, but not only that, the brutal murder of Christians as well. And yet, one day, Paul meets Jesus. He sees the risen Lord, and it transforms him completely. He goes from working hard to purge the good, news, the good news of Jesus from the earth to working hard to propagate and proclaim the good news of Jesus in the earth. This man who persecuted the church of God becomes someone who was persecuted for the church of God. This man who did unspeakably horrendous acts of violence to people becomes someone who has unspeakably horrendous acts of violence done to himself in love for, same, for those same people And not once does he respond with violence to violence. When he is slapped on the cheek, he gives the other as well. He prays for his enemies. He loves his enemies. He works for the good of his enemies. Instead of hating, he loved and served and preached the gospel. And he gave his life for the glory of God and the good of his neighbors. Church, that is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hardest and coldest heart can be softened and warmed by Jesus. The vilest of sinners can become children of God through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The terrorist Paul can be transformed into a messenger for the faith he once tried to destroy because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ takes sinners transforms their hearts and makes them like Jesus. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ can take murderers and terrorists and drug addicts and thugs and you and me and make us into children of our heavenly father who pour out our lives for the good of others and the glory of his name. And an article entitled as an atheist, I truly believe that Africa needs God written by Matthew Paris in Time Magazine, he tells of the profound change that comes through the spread of Christianity today in Africa. The tagline gives it away. It says, missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem. Like most atheists, he used to think that if faith was needed to help, uh, you know, that's fine, but what counted was the help, not the faith, he says. But then he goes on, this doesn't fit the facts though. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. He goes on to say, it confronts my beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. He says, now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The new birth is real. The change is good. And you see the new birth is real, And the change is good because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and it's still being at work today in the lives of people all over this world, giving life, hope, joy, 
peace to people in such a way that change, the change is undeniable and even unignorable, even for the likes of Matthew Paris. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel that what you lack is true joy, true hope, true peace, true faith, true love. Friends, there is good news for you. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. And if you would run from your sin and run to him instead, freedom, forgiveness, transformation is yours. You can have a new identity, a new purpose, a new confidence, a new joy, a new hope, all because of the new life that Jesus has brought into this world by his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that everything has changed and that everything can change for you as well. And so in conclusion, the expectation of the scriptures, the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, the explosive church, the extraordinary transformation all offer evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These five pieces of evidence point to the historical reality that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And because he is raised from the dead, everything has changed and everything can change for you this morning. If you'll only give your life to him and, and, and put yourself in his hands, you can have new life even this morning. If you have any questions, you want to talk after service, I'd love to talk with you. We'd love to talk with you after the service. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. And so it can really change everything for you today. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the scriptures and that they bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the empty tomb, for the eyewitnesses. We thank you for the explosive church that has reached us even to this day. And we thank you for the reality that Christ and his resurrection brings extraordinary transformation. It brought extraordinary transformation to Paul. It brings extraordinary transformation to our lives today. We pray that you would give that hope to some today who do not believe, who do not have this hope, who do not have this peace. Fill them with all joy and peace and believing. Cause them to, to, to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that you have raised him from the dead so that you would receive glory and they would receive good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.